Listener Production. Many of us were first introduced to Osher Gunsberg when he was hosting Australian Idol, the biggest TV show in the country at the time. All right, Australia, you have made this happen for Guy. You have found your Australian Idol. Back then, we knew him as Andrew G. This is Noel from Oasis, and you're watching me, watching my fans on Channel V, and you're about to see me come up on some programme that's hosted by some guy with a girl's haircut called Andy. Osher has lived a large and tumultuous life, one which he has shared openly with his fans and followers through books and podcasts. He is wise, introspective, earnest and considered in a way that maybe you wouldn't expect of the host of The Bachelor franchise. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. The Weekend List is on its way where Tate McGregor and I recommend what to see, watch, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with the remarkable Osher Gunsberg about mental health, growing up, fame, the media, becoming a dad and meeting the love of his life. Before we begin, a warning. Osher and I discuss mental illness and alcoholism in a way that might be upsetting for some of our listeners. So proceed with care. Osher Gunsberg, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. We are so happy to have you. Thanks for having me. Let's get straight into this. Do you think Australians are especially bad at talking about mental health? I don't think we're especially bad at it. I just think we haven't had enough exposure to people doing it. To say we're bad at it means we don't want to learn how to do something. Like, I think as a whole, if you look at popular culture from the 60s, 70s, even 80s, you'd think Australians are especially bad at not recognising racism in their culture. (laughs) But it's not because we were like back then, oh, no, I refused. You know, like we weren't like white supremacists. We're like, oh, we just haven't really seen what it looks like to not be that. And now as we all grow and mature as a community, we're like, oh, we're a lot better at this sort of thing now. And people with different surnames and, you know, different shades of skin, uh, there is you know, as much value in my community as I am. So we've kind of learned that you know, that's better for all of us when we speak that way. So similarly around mental health, we weren't, we're not especially bad at it. We just haven't been exposed to uh, how to do it in a, in a, in a positive way. That isn't, Ooh, don't talk about that. It's just a thing. Not unlike I had had to have a hip replacement six months ago. It's, it's, you know, that's cause I had um, osteoarthritis in one leg and, it's no bigger deal than that. It's just a thing that sometimes goes wrong with people and there's heaps of treatment and life can be great and rich and fulfilling with the treatment and you just kind of carry up and move on and on you go. I think what you say is absolutely true, but I don't know if that's always how it plays out, right? Like I think about workplaces I've been in and, Mm. you know, the reaction of my workplace when I was unwell, I've had a brain tumour for a few years And when I was unwell, it was taken so seriously. It was you take leave, whatever you need, how do we help, sending the flowers. I don't know if I'd said I'm bipolar and I've had a really serious episode and I need 12 weeks off. I don't know if workplaces respond the same way and if the people around you respond the same way. Well, we can only move our way step by step forward. 
you know, for example, things like if you look 20 years ago, if a dad said, my partner's just given birth, I need to have four weeks off to be at home, they'd be like, what are you talking about? You'll be here this afternoon. You know, the concept of paternity leave was completely foreign, yet as our value structures change, so do our responses to things change. And So while I, I can definitely say there may be some workplaces where what you're talking about is, is true, I'd like to think that slowly over time we'll, we'll get there and we will because it's particularly if you've had a bipolar episode and you do need some time away, there may be an opportunity for that workplace. It might be the first time that workplace has had that conversation. There may be an opportunity for them to go, oh, this person who's an absolute legend that came up with the pitch and the presentation that won us all these jillions of dollars in business, part of what makes them amazing and what they do is they have this brain that occasionally flips into this moment. Okay, we can give them some time. And then when they come back, they'll be able to make rad presentations and great pitches again. No mental state is a permanent state. And it just comes along with kind of Try it as hard as you can. I think in all cases, just separating the illness from the person. I think that's that's what's really important. Why has it been important to you to share your own experiences? Because I think for someone in the public spotlight and someone as well known as you, that's in, an incredibly generous thing to do. Um, all through my various journeys of going from a place of not being great to trying to be better, whether that be around sobriety or when my first marriage ended or my mental health. On the road to recovery and all of those things of trying to be, you know, live life as a sober person or, you know, figure out whatever things that I did wrong that made various relationships fail and what I could change about myself or, you know, how I can go from being quite ill to being a lot more functional. I could not picture what life would look like when it was better. Uh, That's part of how our brain works, I guess, to protect. It's one of the things our brain does to protect us. It, it tries to say, well, this might be a permanent state, so we have to avoid this at all costs. And that was that's a real good survival instinct. But, you know, it was in hearing stories of sober people going, I don't know, one day it'll be better and you'll be able to go out and be in a room full of people without having to neck a six pack. I didn't believe them, but I'm like, well, clearly you're okay. So something that you've done is working. I'll just, all my ideas have gotten me to a dead end, so I might just listen to someone else's ideas. So it was in hearing other people's stories that gave me the hope that it wasn't always going to be this way. And all I was trying to do by talking about it on my podcast and then writing a book about it was just try to give to other people what was given to me. What kind of teenager were you, Osha? Ah, the fat and frightened one. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it was awful. I hated it. Uh, Someone who believed, unfortunately, I, I, I don't know how it ended up, Miller, I just didn't – I had a very strange concept of how the world worked, um, mostly because at the time I I believed that what I'd seen in TV and movies was how things were supposed to work. I didn't realise that that was a hyped-up version of, you know, uh, some screenwriter's fantasy and some actor's interpretation of, of what this fantasy was supposed to be. I, You know, I ended up trying to either copy or replicate or, or – expect from various moments of my life that, oh, no, this is how it should be. This is the part where the fireworks go off and my high school band plays a song and all the football guys get upset because we won the band competition because <laughs> that's what I saw in the movie. And that's not what happened because that was the movie. But I had a weird kind of simplistic view of the world for a long time for whatever reason. A life's realities kind of did show up quite intensely later on in my life, unfortunately, way later on in my life. But, yeah. I, I had a very difficult time being a teenager and that does relate, you know, now I try as hard as I can to support our eldest, she's 17. 
because being a teenager is really hard. It's really hard, particularly now when it's like, hey, you remember that, you know, big overseas adventure you were planning on going on? Well, you're not going to do it. Uh, hey, remember this idea that, you know, one of these days you might get a career and afford a house in the city everybody else lives in? Uh, you might not be able to do it. You know, so it's really hard to imagine what it would be like. Hey, you know that kind of planet that we've all got a chance to live on? Well, 20 years from now, won't look a thing like the one we're on right now. Sorry, climate change. So just trying to support her through all these things is is really important. And I think that's really important for anyone who's got a teenager in their life, just to understand that the world that they're living in and growing up in is so vastly different to the one that you did. And the expectations and pressures, not only on you know their own lives, but their expectations of their own lives, but also the opportunities available to them are so vastly different to the ones that were available to any generation older than them. I have been reading about parenting a little bit lately and particularly about parenting boys and there's this philosophy that says the first seven years of a boy's life he belongs to his mum that's his biggest influence the Mm -hmm. second seven years belong to dad if it's a heterosexual parenting relationship and that's the biggest influence and then the next seven years belong to the friends and they're those later teenage years you're talking about and you sit there and you go yeah the friends are great but they haven't done this before (laughs) They're not the best influence because they don't know how to help. This is true. And I guess those first 14 years is where you are doing your best to make sure that, you know, choosing good friends is a really important part of, you know, because we all know that the wrong friend combined with the wrong song and the wrong summer you can <laughs> derail a lot of people and we've all been there. And so I certainly had that experience. And, and that's the thing about, you know, G is she's always chosen really good people to be friends with. The value system that her friends have is, is a really good one and we're really lucky. You mentioned that influence on you as a teenager of sort of watching movies or television or getting that Mm. um, sense from the media of how life was supposed to look and then when real life doesn't measure up, I think that's a bit of a shock for all of us. And yet you end up going into the media and working in the media. Mm -hmm. Did you always want to do that? Was that always the path that you were looking for? (laughs) I think like many people, someone discovered that I was good at and it was the first time I'd ever been good at anything. I just went with it. Um, part of me always wanted to be on stage. You know, I played in bands for a long time and, you know, I still play, uh, but a bass player without a band is a very lonely man. So I mostly (laughs) play six string these days, but part of that desire to be on stage was abated by being on radio, which is where I started. I just happened to get good at it. You know, I happened to get really good at it. And I started to understand ways that worked differently than other people to the point where I was getting jobs over other people. And I'm like, well, this seems to be working. And I did not do well in high school and I never went to university. I'm like, this is my chance. So you mentioned you were on SAFM. That is, I believe, where you adopted the stage name Andrew G. Hello, I'm Andrew G. If you like films that have things blowing up and Ice Cube and Samuel L. Jackson, then there's a movie for you. Tell me how you felt about that at the time. Was it just a kind of, oh, okay, that's part of the job situation or did yeah. you question it? Um, I did kind of want to be my own name by that point. I'd only ever been known by radio nicknames at that point. And I, I remember saying to my boss at the time, I'd like to be Andrew Ginsberg. And he went, <laughs> it's Adelaide, mate. Andrew G. <laughs> okay. Adelaide in the 90s was a weird place. Bear in mind, just up the road, all that horrible stuff that was happening in Snowtown was happening at that very time. So yeah, Adelaide right. it was, was a dark time. sometimes kind of still is a pretty strange place. Adelaide's an odd place. And um, 
And so, like, I was like, all right, man, if that means you'll, you'll pay me and let me on air, then sure, whatever. And, you know, nicknames stick. And, um, yeah, don't worry. I, went, I underwent an aggressive rebrand about 10 years ago. You did. <laughs> tell me about that. Tell me about the rebrand because I, you know, I'm I, like you, I'm someone who grew up with an unusual second name as well as first name. And, you know, I remember when I was a little kid, my grandmother used to say, well, she's going to read the news for SBS one day. And if she was still alive, I'd really like to go back and say, you know, read the news for anyone would be good. Like it doesn't have yeah. to be SBS. Yeah, right. Look, it was a multitude of things. I was spiritually searching for some answers. Uh, I'm not a religious person. I don't believe in an interventionist deity of any description. But I was spiritually searching for something that clicked. And, you know, I met this basically a Kabbalist mystic that told me if I changed my name, I'd change my life. And I did and it did. Now, whether it has to do with some sort of ancient secret energy unlocked in the Kabbalah, I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's more to do with nominative determinism and the fact that I was looking for a way to separate my new sober life from my previous life, Mm. my new way of doing things, my new system of values, my new sense of right and wrong from how I had been living my life. And it was a very helpful way for me to do so and then changed basically the way that I behaved and the way that I carried myself and the way that people related to me and the opportunities and the relationships that I formed after that reflected that. But I would put it to you that I went to school in Brisbane in the in the 80s and one December we said goodbye to our grade three teacher, Miss Smith, and one February we said hello to our grade four teacher, Mrs. Collins. Same person. However, she changed her name. And because now she wore different clothes, she felt about herself differently, she related to herself differently, she moved differently, she spoke differently, she had an air of authority she didn't have before. And so people change their names all the time. And it works for various reasons. And it worked for me. Ladies, I'm sorry, but she did not receive a rose. The Bachelor is on television again at the moment. Mm. I caught an episode the other night. There are people who go on reality TV to get famous. I suspect that's a lot of them. But I think a lot of them are also there because they're searching for something and that's something you've experienced in your life and I think that makes them really vulnerable. Is part of your role as host not just about what we see on the screen but about supporting people behind the scenes? On a show like Bachelor, supporting people is a very, very important part of what we do. And there are processes and systems and people and, you know, full careers in place that do support those people. And despite what you may think, we are in the business of looking after people and protecting people. We are asking them to have authentic emotional reactions on camera and we have a duty of care to them around protecting them for having those emotional reactions. And there are a lot of people that work hard to do that. That's not my job. I am not a therapist. I'm not a counsellor. That's not my job. What you see on camera, that's the sum total of my interaction with the ladies in the mansion. I'll occasionally speak to our bachelor. I'll occasionally speak to our man. On occasion, when we've had various bachelors who may or may not be considering dating someone who's got a kid, 
Audrey has been very generous and we've had that person over for dinner. This is before Wolfie showed up. So this, you know, they could go, all oh, right, so this is what it's like when you, you know, you're dating someone who's got a kid and all right, okay, this can work. That's probably about the level of it. Most of the time, it's just more, I guess, it's in the period between shooting and when the show finale goes to air that I just try to stay in touch because there's very few people that our batch can talk to about what's gone on. But like I said, again, it's not my job to support them in that stance. There's there's people who are, uh, it's their job to support them in a much more meaningful and fundamental and clinical, to be honest, way than me. Tell me about Audrey. What made you fall in love with her? Because <laughs> she's kindness personified. She's an amazing human being and um, she's just just a, del- a delight. She's just a ray of light and an incredible person who I adore. And um, yeah, she's a magnificent, loving, loving, loving person and an incredible mum to G. I missed the part where G was really little. I showed up when G was 10. So to be able to witness how Audrey plays the very little part with Wolfie is just extraordinary. And I learned so much from her. Um, and I think that's a really important thing. We have an opportunity when we have our own kids to, in many ways, we can not do any work and choose to carry on the perhaps unhealthy patterns of behaviour that we'd learned from our own family origin, or we can choose to go, okay, then, what's another way to do this? It might not be better, might just be a different way to do this. What's a different way to do things from how it was done with me? Because... I know how I feel about what happened to me. What's another way we can do things? So I work, I can do my best to not replicate whatever went on. And you have an opportunity to heal and prevent those patterns of behaviour from going on another generation. And that's an incredible healing thing about parenting. Becoming a parent often comes with another name change, at least to one little person or multiple people. How does being a dad or being called dad sit with you? And what kind of dad are you? Uh, look, it's great. I love hearing it. And there's, you know, there's nothing that makes you feel as good as when, like, I was up early this morning doing um, radio interviews before Wolf got up. And then so I went upstairs for a quick wee break and I hear from the other end of the house, Daddy! And then followed by stomp, 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 because here comes Wolf for a cuddle. And, like, I've stood on stage and had 10,000 people scream my name. It doesn't feel as good as that. <laughs> Not going to lie. It's amazing, dude. What kind of dad am I? I don't know. The kind of dad that's trying to be better at it every day that I understand that these first few years are incredibly important, incredibly fundamental in laying down the the infrastructure of how this human being's brain will work for the rest of their lives and understanding things like their, their, their feeling of attachment and safety is so important when it comes to their anxiety responses later in life and just trying as hard as I can to give this person the best chance for when they're an adult because I can tell you, like as an adult, trying to rewire those things is a lot of work. It's a heavy responsibility and very worthy, I think, of a, of a new name or a new title. Osha, thank you so much for <laughs> being with me on The Weekend Briefing. You're a champ. Thanks for having me. That's it for my chat with Osha Gunsberg. You might not be what you expect, right? I really want to recommend a bunch of the podcasts he is a part of at the moment, Better Than Yesterday. 
Dad Pod Podcast and Idol Australians. You can catch them wherever you listen to your podcasts. Coming up next, The Weekend List. Welcome, Tate McGregor, and welcome to The Weekend List. I know a bunch of you are in lockdown and a bunch of you are free, so we will try and give a little bit of something to all of you that will please. Tate, what have you got for us? I have the Gossip Girl reboot that you can watch on Binge. The best thing about this reboot is that if you haven't seen the original Gossip Girl, it doesn't really matter. They only really reference it in the first episode. But if you don't know the storyline, essentially there's almost a surveillance character called Gossip Girl. She sends out blasts, as they put it, and it's gossiping about Manhattan's elite. In this storyline, it's eight years after the original website went dark and it's a new generation of New York's private school teenagers. And essentially at school, they don't listen to their teachers. And then the teachers find out that Gossip Girl once was a thing that used to scare these popular teenagers. So they started again anonymously. And it's all about the teachers taking back control through Gossip Girl. It's really good. And the costuming, Amazing. The soundtrack, beautiful, perfect. It's a really good watch. Looks like JC and Z really have buried the hatchet. Too bad Z buried it in Obi's back. I was always into the first season of Gossip Girl for the clothes more than anything else, but I will have to check out the new one. While we're on TV, thinking of all of you in Sydney, I have another recommendation and that is Never Have I Ever. Season two has just dropped on Netflix And I've got to say, I think, and this is a big call, this might be my favourite television series of the pandemic. Big call. So in season two, we continue this sort of coming of age comedy that is focused on an Indian American teenager called Devi. And she is dealing with the everyday pressures of high school and there's drama at home and she's navigating new romantic relationships, blah, blah. Seems like the same usual stuff you watch. But it's just not. It's made by Mindy Kaling and Lang Fisher. It is narrated by John McEnroe, as in the tennis player, John McEnroe. And he plays kind of almost like Debbie's spirit animal slash guide. And it is so true to the experience of high school. It isn't stylized in that awful, dramatic way that makes it feel unreal. And it is joyously multicultural and intersectional. And the actress that plays Devi is extraordinary. And you will not only fall in love with her, you will fall in love with her entire Indian family, including the aunties, the grandma and her mum. Cannot recommend it highly enough. You're kissing? Your father's ashes have barely begun to drift out to sea. I just got overcome with emotion. What are you going to do at my funeral? Just have sex on top of my grave? I pray it's a closed casket. Look at us recommending some high school dramas. <laughs> I know, it's a theme today. What else have you got, Tate? Um, I want to put you on to an artist called Jawny, J-A-W-N-Y. He made it big with his track Honey Pie in 2019. It was possibly the biggest indie release of that year. Well, he signed with Interscope Records, which boasts artists like Billie Eilish, and he's put out his second EP called The Story of Hugo. Last year, he put out an EP called For Abby, and this is the follow-up from that. It's all in the same narrative about a boy meets girl, they fall in love, some things go down. This is more about the boy in that situation, and it's really cool music. It's like carnival pop 
bit lover boy pop. It's really fun. He does some really cool interludes where he gets his managers to berate him. He talks about watching this girl that he used to love who's now at the Grammys with a new man. It's really interesting. So, Johnny, J A W N Y, he's just a larger than life guy with a larger than life EP. for those of you who are stuck at home in Sydney. And warning, it's a little bit pricey. So this isn't a regular occasion option. This is a maybe once, maybe once, maybe twice, maybe twice, a twice a lockdown treat yourself. So Providor are a organisation that set up quite early in the pandemic. And the idea was to bring not just your kind of Uber Eats, uh, Deliveroo options, when it comes to food to your home, but to bring the best food that our country has to offer. So through Providor, you can order meals and in fact, like the full degustation kind of option from your favorite top restaurants. So in Sydney, you've got options like Rockpool, the Apollo, Spice Temple, Neil Perry. They offer meals that are kind of partly cooked. You've got to do a little bit of the work at home, but nothing too hard. And you can have the experience of being at a truly beautiful restaurant in your own dining room. And I think while we can't go out and do something special, it's really important that we break our days and our weeks up and get away from that monotony. So I recommend ordering some Provador, putting on your best clothes, putting on some beautiful new music that Tate has recommended, pouring the champagne and pretending for one night that you're not in lockdown, that you're choosing to have this beautiful dinner at home. I'm salivating at the thought of it. That's it from us for this week. Thank you for being part of The Weekend Briefing and listening to The Weekend List. If you want to hear more from The Briefing Podcast, then the best thing to do is subscribe. You can find us in the listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, why not leave us a rating and a review? I'm suggesting five stars, but I will leave it up to you. We will see you next Monday, bright and early in the morning, when Annika and Tom will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.